had the great privilege this past week uh, of attending the Eastern Region Convention down in Rochester, New Hampshire, and was encouraged and gladdened uh, to see and to hear what, uh, what God is doing uh, in, in New England and, and uh, Atlantic Canada. Uh, there was a story that was told during one of the breakout sessions uh, of somebody's first time in the pulpit, and it was actually right here. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Corey McLaughlin, whom I'm sure some of you know, uh, he, he was invited by George to speak, and he didn't quite know whether he was 100% serious about it or not. So he made his preparations, but he said up until the time that he started, he thought that at any time George could say, no, 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 I was, I was just kidding. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and sit down. But <clears throat> it, was, um, it was encouraging to hear how God is at work uh, in sometimes some unexpected ways, sometimes some long-awaited ways. Um, but God is on the move. We're going to look uh, at Ephesians 1, uh, and let's go ahead and just read through verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to praise of his glory. The first thing that I want to draw attention to uh, is, is just sort of the general shape of this passage. Um, if, if Paul is using words to paint a picture here, what, what we've been doing, and, and what we'll be doing a little bit later on, is looking very, very closely at that picture. I want to take a step back and, and look at it from a little bit further away. Uh, so last week, uh, in, in verses 6 through 10, we talked um, some about our adoption as sons and how that was made possible by our redemption and our forgiveness and how Christ and how uh, God in Christ is unifying all things in him. And what Paul does here is um, he takes that, that idea of unity and, and he splits it apart a little bit. Uh, so in verses 11 and 12, um, he, start, he starts off saying, we have obtained an inheritance. Um, and then later on says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. And so that's a, that's a reference to the Jewish believers who would have been the very first disciples that Jesus made. Um, and so he starts off in unity and then breaks it apart and says, we who, the, we who were the first to believe those Jews who found their promised Messiah in Jesus Christ are to the praise of his glory. And then in 13 and 14, he, um, he breaks it apart further and says, in him you also, referring to uh, the, the generally Gentile church in Ephesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, um, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so he's, he, he takes this time uh, to, to build this shape where he's moving from the unity of Christ and then looks at that distinction between Jew and Gentile and says that both of those promises, the, the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the coming Messiah, um, are reunified, are, are unified in the guarantee of their inheritance. Uh, and so I really like how that flows. It's together, and then apart, and then back together again. And one of the things that this does is um, it gives us a framework to look at some of the people in the world around us. Uh, there's a, a woman uh, who lives in uh, Guatemala, and her name is, my Spanish is pretty poor. She says, just go ahead and call her Janet. Um, She's not very tall. She's probably about this tall. Uh, I've got easily 150 pounds on her. Um, our skin is wildly different colors. We have um, a hard time conversing, although her English is probably better than my Spanish. But the defining characteristic of Janet is not any of those things. It's not her size. It's not her skin color. It's not her language. It's not the country that she lives in the defining characteristic of Janet's life is that she loves Jesus Christ with a passion. And she devotes her entire life, her home is physically organized around helping people to become better followers of Jesus. And I want to contrast that uh, with, a, with a friend of mine. Uh, he's about the same height as me, a little bit taller, about the same build, we have pretty similar interests across the board, musical, um, literary, uh, you know, we tend to enjoy a lot of the same things. And if you saw us, you know, out having lunch together somewhere, you'd look at us and say, well, yeah, obviously they're, they're related. Um, but the thing of it is, is despite all of those similarities, he and I have a very distinct disconnect because he doesn't believe in Christ. He does not follow Christ. And so regardless of how many of those similarities, regardless of how many of those characteristics we share in common, there will always be that disconnect between us. Because the greatest purpose of my life is the pursuit of God. The greatest purpose in his life is something else. And so that distinction that Paul identifies here between Jew and Gentile would have been tremendously important to his hearers. That, that, that racial distinction would have been one of the defining characteristics of their lives up until that moment. But what Paul is saying is, um, is that the gospel is such a unifying power there's such a unity of purpose behind it in glorifying God. And there's such a unity in the future of our inheritance together that all other things are largely irrelevant. Language, race, nationality, those are all secondary 
to our reconciliation, our unification in the gospel. Uh, and we had talked about that a little bit last week. You know, if, if you are not being drawn into unity with other believers, then what does that say about your heart? And if you're not being drawn into unity with other believers, what is it then that you are being unified with? The next thing that I had wanted to draw some attention to was the idea of, uh, of inheritance. In, uh, and it kind of bookends this passage in verse 11 and then in verse 14. In verse 11, it says that we have obtained an inheritance. And then in 14, uh, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And that word, the way that that's set up, uh, that's got a double meaning to it. Uh, and I think that it's an intended double meaning on, on Paul's part. Uh, so it means both the inheritance that we are going to receive, uh, which, is, which is kind of how it's rendered here. We have obtained an inheritance and who, uh, the Holy Spirit being the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Uh, and that's backed up in uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, um, where it says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But there is also a sense in which that mean that not that we have obtained an inheritance, that we're going to get an inheritance, but that we are also going to be an inheritance. Um, in John uh, chapter 17, Jesus is, is praying to the Father. And he said, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. And so we are simultaneously going to be given unity with Christ as an inheritance, but we are also going to be Christ's inheritance, his bride. Um, and if we are being drawn into that unity with Christ, if, if we are his inheritance and he is ours, then how much more so should we value uh, our unity as a body of believers? It says in Ephesians 5 that we'll be getting to in probably several months at this rate, um, <clears throat> that Christ laid himself down for the church. And he gives that as an example of what it means for a husband to love his wife. And so if Christ laid himself down for this church, if we are his inheritance, then how careful should we be that what we are doing is in pursuit of that unity. That we're doing everything in our power to preserve that unity as believers. Uh, I had, a, had the opportunity to have a couple of different conversations uh, with some folks that um, don't quite line up with me theologically. Um, <clears throat> which is okay, that's fine. Um, but they approached it in two very, very different ways. Um, there was one gentleman that, uh, as soon as we sat down and we started talking, what he wanted to get to were the areas that we were different, the places that we didn't necessarily agree. 
he sought out those divisions and, and those differences, and he wanted to emphasize them as much as, as much as possible so that that was the defining element of our conversation, was how we were different, where we disagreed. And that contrasted um, with another gentleman that, you know, we sat down and it, through the course of half an hour or 45 minutes, it became pretty apparent that we had some fundamental disagreements. But as we ended that conversation, or as we got to the end of that conversation, he said, you know, the important thing is, I love Jesus, you love Jesus. We both believe that Jesus came and died for our redemption. And some of those details we might disagree on, but in the end, we can still be effective ministry partners because of the areas that we agree. And so you have these two people that disagreed with me, but one of them wanted to emphasize those disagreements, that wanted, he wanted to find ways to make those disagreements divisions between us. And one who wanted to say, you know, it's much more important that we be united than either one of us be right. And I think that that is the more important, uh, the more important thing in this context. There are situations where you do need to take a stand for truth, but that's a different message. Uh, <clears throat> so this is a little bit of a grab bag here, but one of the other things that I, that I really liked about this uh, was in verse 13, uh, it outlines the process that the Ephesians went through as they, uh, as they became believers. Uh, it, it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And so one of the things that's unique about um, our faith is that God has chosen his word to be, excuse me, to be the messenger by which he speaks to his people. Uh, so it's not that there is a dramatic lightning bolt revelation and all of a sudden you understand all of the mysteries of the universe. But he gives you his word, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we, as, uh, as, a, as a body of believers, as a faith community, still practice the somewhat arcane um, method of teaching. You know, this is, this method right here, this mechanism, not where the world would say we need to be. This is not where the world would say we need to, or not how the world would say we need to learn. There needs to be much more dialogue where we all come to a common understanding by, uh, by each of us contributing our own ideas and feeling out that truth on our own. But we differ from that in that we believe that this is truth. There is no needing to discern what truth is. There is no need for us to come to uh, you know, a, a common understanding of what is true for us. This is truth. And so this is where we start from. 
And when the church in Ephesus heard the word of truth, the gospel, they discovered that that was their salvation. They discovered that this was the truth that would redeem them from their sins. This was the truth whereby they could find forgiveness. And so they heard it, and they discovered it, and they believed. They believed. Repent and believe and repent and believe. And so this is one of those areas, I think it was last week that we had talked about, um, where there's some tension. You know, we, there's, there's two competing ideas that are true, and we need, to, we need to sort of understand how, um, how those work together. And so we read earlier in this, in this, um, in this section of Scripture uh, that it was God's will that they were saved, that, that it was God's predetermination, his predestination that they were saved. But it says here that they also believed. That was an action that they took. And so there's a tension there. You know, God wills it. And it can't happen without his will, without his intervention. But there is still an action that takes place on the part of the believer to believe. Uh, and so that's, that's some great tensions. I'd love to talk with anybody about that at greater length because it's a fantastic discussion. But, um, and in, so they heard the word of truth. They discovered that it was their salvation. They believed and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a result of that. And so one of the things that, um, that's, that I love to see is that um, this process that's outlined here can take place over the span of minutes. You know, you, you know some of those people, you've heard some of their stories where all of a sudden, through the words that they were reading or the words that they were hearing, just like that, they believed. And that was it. That was the end of their old life and the start of their new. They were a new creation at that moment. And then there were people who, they would say, at the age of 15, I wasn't a believer. By the age of 30, I was. And something happened in between. Uh, God works uniquely in each person's life, um, but it does follow this general progression. You know, it's not something that can happen out of order. You aren't sealed with the Holy Spirit, and then you hear the word, and, um, and, and you believe, and then you discover that it's your salvation. You know, it happens in that discrete order. Uh, and there can't be steps that are missing. And so one of, the, one of the easiest steps to miss, or the easiest step for us to underestimate our own involvement in, is that first step. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth. Is anyone familiar with the passage in, in Romans 10? So if their salvation started with their hearing of the word of truth, uh, in Romans 10, 14, it picks up, uh, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
So we have great responsibility, the great privilege of being involved in people's salvation. We have the privilege of participating in that first step. It's God that changes their heart. And it's, it's God that changes their heart. And it is God that affects their salvation. But he does that through us. How fantastic is that? That we get to be used by God to save people. But in order to do that, we need to be ready in season and out of season to proclaim that word of salvation so that they can hear it. So they heard, they discovered, they believed, and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um, so that, that idea of sealing, it's a mark of ownership, kind of like a cattle brand. You know, you've, you've seen the old westerns where they brand cattle with some with a particular ranch's mark. It's a mark of ownership, and it's a mark of um, authenticity in this case as well. Uh, so we know that somebody's salvation is, is complete because we can see the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So it's a mark of authenticity. It's a mark of ownership. Uh, and it also says here that it's a guarantee, uh, verse 14, uh, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Uh, and, and that word there, that's a, um, it's actually a Hebrew word that kind of transmuted into uh, common usage in the Greek. And so that's something that, that uh, they see in secular writings of the time. And it's a down payment, basically. It's a partial payment that, um, that validates a contract. And so when you go and you go to buy a house or a car, you show up and you say, yeah, I want to take it. Um, and most of the time, you can't do it right then. So you say, I'll, I'll leave you $1,000 or I'll leave you $10,000 or whatever until we can fully execute this contract. And so the Holy Spirit is a down payment on our future inheritance. It's a small piece of what it will mean in eternity, to be united with Christ. And the Holy Spirit is also a promise fulfilled. Uh, it's a seal, it's a guarantee, it's also a promise fulfilled. Uh, from the Old Testament, uh, in, in Joel, uh, being one of the references, and, and Peter references this in, uh, in his sermon just after Pentecost, Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And so it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. It was also a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made in John 14. Uh, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So the Holy Spirit is a promise fulfilled 
fulfilled from the Old Testament prophecies, fulfilled from the promise of Jesus, and it is also a promise that has been made because as that deposit, it's a foretaste of what it means to be unified with Christ. And so we look at the fruit of at, uh, at at the fruit of the Spirit that we're given, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so these are all the things that we get from just a part of what it means to be unified with Christ. And so if those things by themselves are as glorious as they are, then how much more so when that unification, when that promise, when that inheritance is completely fulfilled? The last piece that, <clears throat> that I want to draw attention to here uh, is, a, is a phrase that's repeated in a couple of different variations. Um, but all of these things, the Jews who were the first to hope in Christ, what does it say there? They were the first to hope in Christ that they might be to the praise of his glory. And then you also, being the Gentiles, were sealed by the Spirit. It was the guarantee of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. So this hope that the Jews had that was fulfilled and the sealing that we were given as all believers is all done to the praise of his glory. I've referenced this a, a number of different times, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, and it says as much in Isaiah 43, uh, where God is, there's a, there's a longer passage there, but God says basically, I, I am doing a new thing, and I'm bringing water into the desert. And he's doing that. It says in, uh, in verse 21, for the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So all of these things that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, our adoption as sons, our redemption out of slavery, the forgiveness of our sins, unity with Christ, and sealing with the Spirit, were not done just so that we might be saved. Because our salvation is not the end game. But they were done so that through our salvation, God would be glorified. So before, before I make my last point, I want to read that whole passage uh, from verse 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. There's one idea there that is repeated a number of different times throughout that passage. We have been blessed in Christ, in verse 3. In verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, uh, it was set forth in Christ to unite all things in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we, were the, we who were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in him you also. So these blessings, this adoption, this redemption, this forgiveness, this unity, this sealing, are all available only in Christ. There is no other mechanism, there is no other person, there is no other way that we can have these things for ourselves, that we can become these things for Christ, other than in Him. And that's a little bit of an abstract idea. I understand that. Um, and I think that we were given a wonderful metaphor uh, for what it means to be in Christ. Uh, and we were given that metaphor in the ark, in Genesis 7 and 8 and 9. If you don't know that story, uh, in that day God had promised a day of judgment upon the world where they would pay the price for their sinful ways. And God promised that coming day of judgment, but for Noah, he gave Noah a way out. He said, if you build an ark, if you build it the way I tell you to, and if you are inside that ark the way that I tell you to be, you will be saved. And so once he was in that ark, he depended on what was inside the ark for everything. He depended on the food and the water and the protection and the shelter that the ark offered. Because everything outside of it was dead. The only place that you could find life was inside of the ark. And the ark was the only vehicle that could carry them through that day of judgment and destruction. God's wrath was poured out on the world, was poured out on the ark. But the ark sheltered those who were inside. Those who were inside were spared. The ark took the punishment of the storm for those who were inside of it. And so we need to understand this metaphor in light of not a past day of wrath, but a coming day of wrath. 
It says in Acts 17 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. That should concern us. Because none of us are righteous. Not me and not you. We lie, we cheat, we steal. None of us are righteous. And so if we want the blessings that the Bible says can be ours, we can only obtain them in Christ, in our ark. That's the only way that we can hope to weather that coming storm. The only way we can do it is to throw ourselves into that ark, into the ark of his grace, the ark of his mercy, and be saved from the storm of his justice. But it's a binary proposition. There's only two choices. There's only two options. You can be inside the ark, or you can be outside of the ark. In Matthew 25, you can be a sheep or you can be a goat. You can go to the left or you can go to the right. In Matthew 7, it's the narrow road or the broad road. There is no third road. There is no middle road. There is no third way. God has given a single way to be saved. And it is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except in the ark of Jesus Christ. No one weathers that storm except in the ark of Jesus Christ. And so if you desire these blessings, if you desire to weather that storm, if you long for adoption into the family of God, if your heart is heavy with the chains of slavery to sin, the one and only hope that you have for redemption, for deliverance from that bondage, is to place your hope in Christ. I heard an analogy, and this is not mine. I'm not nearly smart enough to come up with this. Imagine you're on an airplane. It's lost all of its engines and wings, and it's going to crash. <clears throat> There's people, and everybody responds a little bit differently in a situation like this. There are some people that are just going to sit in their seat with their headphones on, watching the in-flight movie, and just ignoring everything that's going on around them, pretending that it's not happening. What's going to happen to them? The plane is still going to crash, still going to die. They can pretend all they want. They can ignore all they want. But that doesn't change what's going to happen to them. There are people who are going to run around screaming that everything is terrible and, and I don't know what we're going to do and, I, and, and everything's just going wrong. And I, That doesn't do them any good. they will still die. You could have somebody who doesn't have a clear understanding of the laws of physics say, 
well, you know, I have an umbrella. And this is a real good umbrella. It's gotten me through a lot of tough times. And so I'm just going to jump out, and I'm going to trust that my umbrella is going to keep me safe. They can have perfect trust in that umbrella. They can believe that that umbrella is their salvation with every fiber of their being. But it's not going to make any difference. That umbrella is insufficient to save them from what is coming. It is not enough. And there's a person with a parachute. And when that person jumps out of that airplane, they are placing the entirety of their trust in that parachute. They are in the parachute, just as we are in Christ. They will escape the plane and the coming death by placing their trust in that parachute. But it comes with a catch. Because when you jump out of that plane in that parachute, that's all you have. You have nothing else. You can carry nothing. You can bring nothing with you. It's you and the parachute. And that's it. But the parachute is life. The parachute is your salvation. You will escape the plane and escape death by trusting in that parachute. But that person, before they jump, I think, has a responsibility. They have the obligation to tell the people around them, there's more parachutes over there. You don't have to die. You don't have to go down with the plane. Put on your parachute and jump with me. And that is our obligation, to proclaim that word of truth, the gospel of our salvation to the world. That those people don't have to die in that plane. They don't have to die in their sin. It's not just enough that we escape. But we want everybody to come with us. You don't just jump by yourself. You tell everybody that you can about it. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that you have an obligation to your fellow man, to your friends, to your family, to share, to proclaim, to exhort, to pray, to be an example of. There's a parachute there. Grab it. Put it on. Trust in it. And let's go. Let's pray together. Father, we don't always understand everything that we read in your word. There are some pieces that are hidden to us at different times in our lives, Lord. But I pray that 
we would not let those hard pieces, those confusing pieces, those pieces that we don't understand, obscure and stand in the way of those pieces that we do. Father, your word says that it is truth, that it is the gospel of our salvation. And that to be saved, we need, to tr we need only to trust in you. And I ask that as we do that, Lord, we would not let that trust sit unused in just our lives. That we would take that hope, that gospel, that salvation to the people around us. That you would not let us sit content to watch those we love go down with that plane, Lord. To face that day of final judgment and wrath, unaware of the danger of their situation and the glorious hope that you have provided in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that every single heart here today would be convicted of the necessity and the urgency of this situation. Because we do not know the hour, we do not know the day. And so it must be today that we proclaim this. It must be today that we share this hope. Give us strength, give us courage, and allow us to trust in you and in you alone. to share that hope and that trust with those around us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.